Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. I think that the Lord, the word of the Lord um, is be prepared. Uh, last week during the Democratic debates, one of the candidates stood up, Beto O'Rourke, and said that he became president he would get rid of all the tax-exempt status for all the churches, Christian churches, all the Muslim organizations, all the conservative Jewish groups that did not agree with same-sex marriage and would not hire uh, gays on staff, that he would eliminate their tax-exempt status for all colleges, and he would eliminate federal funding for any Christian school that stood on grounds of traditional marriage. This is the hostility that's now coming from those who would promote that agenda. And you think, that could never happen. They would never do that. And that's what we thought about the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage a couple of years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> that's what we you know, uh, thought about so many decisions that's been made, like supporting uh, Planned Parenthood, a million and a half dollars a day, to abort babies and sell baby body parts. Okay. The Lord is saying for us to be prepared. In Jeremiah, it says that if you can't walk, how can you run with the horses? If you can't walk in the reeds, which means in the tall grass, how can you run with the horses? And I think the Lord is challenging us to be prepared. And a part of the enemy's temptation toward us as this begins to come down the train, as the spiritual warfare increases and Satan becomes to oppose through political people and other people the stand and the truth of Scripture and the light of the church, there's going to be a spirit of discouragement, lethargy, and passivity that will hit the church. It will, you can, you'd be able to feel the heat, and a lot of people will feel the heat, and they want to make that stand, and they'll capitulate. Okay. And that's the period we're in right now. Okay. We, your polls are coming out showing more and more people are not identifying as Christians. Why? Because they're feeling the heat. Feeling the societal pressure that if you don't go with the flow, we may reject you. Okay. You may lose this job. You may not get that funds. You may not get accepted into that school because your stance on Scripture Okay. We're willing to follow Jesus, no matter what it costs, no matter where it leads. If we love him, he sacrificed his life for us. Will we stand with him in these perilous times? So I just encourage you, I know it sounds dark and heavy, but that's what happened last week. Okay, And a number of the other candidates stood there and agreed with him. Okay, now, some of it's showboating, political showboating, to get that particular group on their side politically. And some people, would, they wouldn't pursue it. But I've been hearing this talk in Congress for several years now. Okay. We're going to walk with him no matter what. Okay. We're going to stand with him no matter what comes. We're going to stand on the truth and the authority of Scripture no matter who opposes us. Okay. All right, turn with me to John chapter 8. We're looking at who is Jesus. 
And the last couple of weeks, we've been in John chapter 1. And we've been talking about the theme of coming and seeing. In chapter 1, we saw that you come and see, which means you come and experience a person. And you come and see, and you come and follow, and it will change your life. You come and see, and you come with friends. You come in a community. And you come and wonder, because you've now met Jesus, who's the new temple. By meeting him, you meet God, and you meet the presence of God. Remember, he said, I am where the I am Jacob's ladder. I'm where the angels are descending and ascending. I'm the activity of God. I'm where heaven and earth meet. I'm what Jacob saw. You encounter me. You encounter God. You encounter the temple. Come and see in person not a vague spirituality, not a good moral teacher, not just a person who taught love, but a real person who calls us to himself and laid down his life for us. In that text in John 1, he was the Passover lamb, the one who took our place, shed his blood so that we would be accepted in the Lord. Our sins would be covered and the judgment of God would pass over. And he's the Passover lamb. Now we're going to get into some good chunk sections of John where he's going to make some statements called we call the I am statements. Okay, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the fruit of the vine. I am the vine. I am the doorkeeper. Okay, is he just like metaphors or something, or is there a purpose behind these statements? So let's look at uh, John chapter eight. Again, we're going to read from twelve to twenty. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing testimony about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, and you do not know where I came come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The word of the Lord. What does it mean? That's the title this morning. What does it mean? Pretend to be the light of the world. What difference does it make? Okay. And we're in John chapter 8, 12. For those who are making notes about the recording, I am the light of the world. What difference does it make? We'll try to keep it simple this morning. Well, I want you to understand some cultural background that's going on here. Okay. Several things that are happening. And it's getting the Pharisees so upset. By verse 20, they're ready to arrest him, which means they're ready to kill him. They've understood the significance of what he said, but sometimes I don't think we realize the life and death difference of what he said. Okay, Noted, Note that he's standing in the treasury. This is a particular good note that John gives us exactly where he's located in the temple. And another t- uh, note you need to uh, be aware of is over in chapter um, 7, verse 2. It says, uh, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths were at hand. Okay, 
So what John is telling us that the feasts or tabernacles is going on in the temple, and Jesus is ending up being there during that feast. Okay. So to understand this context, we're going to need to understand what's the Feast of Tabernacles about. Why is it significant, and what has to do with light, and why does that light make a difference in our lives? Okay, Feast of Booze was a celebration of the Jews living in shelters while traveling in the desert wilderness as the pillar of fire and cloud led them through the desert. Okay. Let me, uh, if you want to follow me, you can. If not, it's in Exodus. Exodus 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by night and by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So you have this unusual, supernatural manifestation of the Lord's glory, probably the angel of the Lord, leading them. What he's doing is there's this cloud that's actually guiding them through the desert so they'll know where to go. This cloud is also protecting them from the harshness of the sun while you're being in the middle of the desert. And then this glory is reminding them that God is with them and he's ever present to them. Then at night, this cloud would turn to fire and create a light in which they could live by at night and be able to see. This is just, I mean, you do have to get into Hollywood special effects to kind of imagine this in your mind. You got a million people out in the middle of the desert and there's this cloud, glory cloud of God leading them, sometimes, uh, Later, the Jews would call it the Shekinah glory, a Shekinah glory. I've heard it pronounced several different ways. But later, Jews would call it Shekinah glory of God. Whenever a word cloud like that, we tend to think soft, cumulus clouds. This is to be almost an awe, a cloud that would strike awe in you and put you, make you aware of the holiness of God. This is an awe-inspiring cloud of God's glory. And it's guiding them. And it's protecting them from the sun on one hand, but it's providing light on the other hand. Okay, So in the Feast of Booze, they would uh, recreate this uh, experience of the Jews to remind them of how God had provided for them in the wilderness. So they would live in little shelters like they lived in the desert. And the families would build a little shelter out you know, near their property or on their land or where they're farming. And then at the Feast of Booze during those seven days, they would light this huge candelabra. I'm talking huge. Okay? We're in a culture that's used a lot of light. You know, about to get this movie out that I'm fascinated with this weekend, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and all these big actors playing Edison and Tesla and the competition there was between them to who would be, whose ideas would America um, believe or take hold of to light their cities? Would it be direct current or alternating current? Which would it be, would you use Westinghouse power or would you use Edison power? It was a big, thorough competition. And they're about to make a movie out of it. It's called The Current. And we are used to these huge cities being well lit. Imagine in the ancient world, there is no lighting. There are no light bulbs. There's nothing like this. 
those are street lights. So when it turns dark, it's pitch black. Okay. So when that cloud was leading through the desert, it's providing them light to work by at night or light to give them things done at night, unlike anything in the history of the world. So to commemorate that light that the Lord brought, they light this huge candelabra. It would have been 10, maybe 20 feet big, and all these vats of oil are poured into it. And when this is lit, the whole city glows. And the city of Jerusalem is on Mount Zion, and so the whole hill just glows almost uh, uh, supernaturally to remind them how God had provided for them in this cloud. There's just one problem when the feast is over and the candelabra is turned off. You're reminded once again that that glory is gone. Yes, they had it in the wilderness. And yes, at one time that glory of God was in the temple. But we know from Ezekiel that the glory left in Ezekiel 10. There's sin. They're turning their backs on God and their idolatry. Ichabod, no glory. And he had left and not come back. So just like when you have all these celebrations, all these Christmas decorations, and all this build-up to Christmas, I'm always stunned, especially working all these years in retail, just how depressed everyone is the next day. And we, we have huge lines of returns and everybody's like bogged down and tired, circles in their eyes. Because you build all this build up to this day in our secular world and it's over. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles had all this build up to this last day. And now it's over. And we're reminded again that God's glory has left us as Jews. And how do we get it back? How do we engage the presence of God the way we used to? Yeah. If uh, in the Old Testament says that if you encounter the presence of the Lord, it will kill you because of your sin and his perfections and our lack of holiness. So if he does come back, what's going to become of us? And this is where Jesus is standing John wants us to know that Jesus is standing in the treasury where the candelabras are standing in the temple. And he want, John wants us to know that this is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus is standing there at the end when people are at their most depressed. At least the spiritually sensitive people are most depressed. And so picture this. There's a treasury, there's money, there's people taking down the decorations and everything for the festival. And it's like there's kind of this sadness. And he stands in front of the tabernacle and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the glory that you've been looking for. I am the one who led the Jews to the wilderness. I am the presence of God that you long for. I'm also the presence of God that you are afraid of. But in me, you can find joy and happiness in the Lord. This is not just a philosophical statement, by like a nice Plato or Aristotle. So kind of abstract philosophical statement, I'm light. He's making a direct connection between Israel's history and who he is. And he's saying, I am God. 
and I am God in his glory. And if you want to know this glory that has departed, come to me. If you want to spend time in the presence of the Lord, come to me. If you want your sins forgiven, so you don't have to be afraid of God anymore, come to me. If you've got shame and guilt in your life that you're afraid light to shine on, come to me. See, light has two purposes, doesn't it? It can heat, it can warm, and it can expose and reveal. That's why most sin is conducted in darkness. He's the light of the world. And he's saying, I've come. And those deeds done in darkness, bring them to me. And I, you and me, you will find forgiveness. When Jesus says, I am, this is not just a nice preposition, a nice little statement. He's referring back to Moses in the burning bush when the Lord, Moses asked God his name. And he says, Yahweh in Hebrew. The word is, Yahweh, I am in Hebrew. I am that I am, that I will always be pressed. I am sufficient for your past. I am here uh, sufficient for your present. I am here to handle your future. I am. So when Jesus says, I am, he's using the holy name of God, and he's saying, I am God. People say, why don't just Jesus come out and say, I'm divine? But he just did. I am God. And if you want to meet God face to face, come to me because I'm the light you're longing for. This feast that you've been having, you've been commemorating and the sadness you feel because that glory that that once was there that these lights portray has now returned and that glory is in me. I am the light you've been longing for. I am the presence of God that you've been hurting for, I'm the one who brings complete and total fulfillment in your life. So he makes this clear. I am the light of the world, verse 12. I am God, and I'm bringing God's glory, and it's sufficient for all the needs of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever walks with me will know God's purity, his holiness, his greatness. You will never be in doubt because God will always be with you there as a person. We don't follow Jesus because he's a good moral teacher. We don't follow Jesus because he just teaches love. We follow Jesus because he is God. He is God, and because of that, you will have the light of life. You have fulfillment and joy in him. One of the sad things about, one of the pastoral things that breaks my heart is about the whole transgender thing. This week someone came up and gave me their ID so they could use their card in the store and they had switched it to a female name, but it was a, a guy and he was in the transition process. Okay. And my heart just broke for him. It's John Hopkins University used to do these surgeries and they were famous for them. And yet they quit. Why? Because 40% of the people who had them committed suicide. Why? Because the happiness they thought they would find and the fulfillment they thought they would find by changing genders was not there. So John Hawkins shut down the program 
And now these private doctors are taking advantage of these people's needs and hurts and longings and unhappiness and making money of gender surgeries, gender transition surgeries. But Jesus says, if you come to me, no matter how broken you are, no matter how much you struggle with even gender confusion, I am the light of life. I am the one who can bring you fulfillment. I can bring you to joy. I can help you know love. I can take away your sin and the shame and bring you to a place where you're standing face to face with God, the thing you've always wanted for. That's what we all want, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, his famous essay, we all want to be bathed in beauty. In other words, we all want to be able to stand fully and completely in the presence of the Lord, but we all know there's something wrong. And that if we did, we would be exposed and be judged. But in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, who is the glory of God, he has made provision for us to be able to stand in God's presence and so that we can cry, Abba, Father, and know we're part of the family of God and we're accepted in him and approved in him and made right in him. And therefore, we can stand in the presence of God and be bathed in the beauty of the Lord. Now, John has this kind of theme running through it, which I can't develop fully this morning, but a lot of scholars have spent some time in it. And the more I look at it, the more interesting it is. But John has set up the gospel as a big court trial. And he's gathering witnesses. And the question of whether Jesus is the Son of God is what's on trial. And so you see all this witness language going on. So Jesus is bearing testimony about himself. He is the witness. He says his father's the witness. He's a witness of himself. The Pharisees don't buy it. And they uh, accuse him of, uh, who is your father? How do you know this stuff? But, But I want you to see their reaction. They know that what he's saying is serious. And they make the connection between him standing there saying, I'm the light of the world in front of the candelabra, and that he's saying he's God, and he is the glory of God, and in him you meet God, and they take it seriously to the point that they think about arresting him and killing him because it makes them so mad. You look at verse uh, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. God the Father was not ready for the redemption process of his death, burial, and resurrection trial to happen yet. It wasn't the right timing, and the Lord protected him. But their anger, they made the connection. They understood what Jesus was talking about. And they were ready to kill him. Why? Because light reveals what your heart is really like. And... For the disciples and others, when they saw that light, they followed. Come and see, and they did, and they followed. For the Pharisees, their hearts were exposed, and it made them mad. So they wanted to be in control. They wanted to have their sin and pretend to be religious, and their hearts were exposed, and they wanted to kill him. Jesus is the light of the world. What difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world because he has declared that he is God. And because he is the light of the world, we can enter into the glory of God. We can have our sins cleansed and we can be right with him and we can stand in the very presence of God. It's not just a philosophical light. 
This is a genuine light of God's glory. And um, so what do we do as we come away from this? What's the, what's the change that makes? If you've received this light and you walk with him and follow him and believe in him to be the son of God, this light of the world is going to bring, is going to change your heart. And it's going to make you want to live consistently for him, number one. It will cause you to want to be a person of integrity because you see him who has changed your life, who has laid down his life for you, who is radiating the glory of God, and you're so appreciative you want to live a life that's reflective of that light. Two, you want to live attractively so that he can use you to be a light in the darkness, be a light, a city on the hill. As Jesus mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, that you would be a light set on the hill, radiating to other people the glory of God. And they too can have hope and find a relationship with God. Three, it will make you live courageously. Because when you decide to live for the Lord and you want to follow his convictions, some people are going to get mad at you. For instance, Tim Keller mentions this in a sermon that I heard. He said, a police officer came to him and said, I'm in a moral dilemma. The guys in my precinct, guys and gals in my precinct are coming to me and they're upset. And Tim Keller said, why are they upset about? Well, the pimps that have the prostitutes on the corner pay us, pay the officers to turn their other way so that they won't arrest them. In other words, the pimp pays the policeman a fee so that the policemen will turn their backs when they see the prostitution occurring on the corner of the street. The problem we're having with you, the the member of Tim Keller's church, is you're not taking the bribes. And if you don't take the bribes, then he's going to get mad, and then he's going to expose that we've been taking the bribes. The pimp is. So you need to take the bribe. Now what do you do? That officer's life and person of integrity brought light to a situation and exposed the darkness and other people. Are we going to live courageously? Does our lives bring light to a situation? He had at least four different issues, four different things that he mentioned in this message of people in his church who had come to him because of the life they lived, their light brought darkness out, and they had to live courageously in the midst of it. Jesus lived courageously in the midst of the Pharisees hating the exposure that his light was bringing to their deeds of darkness. We can do nothing less than to walk with him in his light. And then number four, we live hopefully. So one, we live with integrity, consistent integrity. Two, when we enter into the light, we'll live uh, lives attractive that are, makes us like miniature lights of the world. Number three, we'll live courageously even when the, the life that we live exposes other people's deeds of darkness. And four, we're going to live hopefully because we know we live in a fallen world. We know there's a lot of sin and evil in this world, but we also know that Jesus has done something about it in the cross,
We also know he's coming again in glory to fix the problem that is our world and bring about a new creation, which the Bible calls the new heavens, the new earth. And that there will be a place in eternity we will live forever in God's presence and there will be no sin, no suffering, no crying, no more. So we live with hope and expectation that we know this life is not all there is to life. He is the light of the world. So we can't be indifferent. He's brought God's glory. So what is your response this morning? What is your response to his glory? Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the light of the world. And it makes all the difference in the world. That's not a philosophical light. Or some kind of good teaching light. A light of the glory of God. It can transform our hearts and bring us freedom and joy in you. Father, remind us today that you are the light of the world and you live in us by the power of your Holy Spirit and you've made us lights to the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.